Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 13, the book of Acts, chapter 5. Well, I hope you are enjoying the book of Acts as much as I'm enjoying presenting it to you. Um, In our introduction to the book of Acts, I said that this book is the vital bridge from the Old Testament to the New. And I'm sure that by now you're seeing it as the construction of our bridge progresses. Now, as we began Acts chapter 5 last week, we immediately found ourselves embroiled in a long-running Christian controversy due to the rather unsettling story of um, Ananias and Shafra. And we're going to spend even more time with it because it's importance to our spiritual and earthly lives is greater than it might appear in a casual reading. Now, some believers aren't aware that there is a controversy swirling around this story because those who are especially new to Hebrew roots, to this perspective of understanding the Lord and His Word, likely have lived most of their, your Christian lives as part of one denomination or another. And Christian denominations aren't known for tackling the contentious issues or for presenting multiple possible solutions to difficult biblical doctrines. Rather, one answer is given as firm and unequivocal, and so laymen often aren't even aware that there are other quite different viewpoints on, on a matter. Now, the challenge that's presented by our story is that beginning with the early Church of Rome, an official attitude about the continuing relevance of each Bible testament was adopted that favored the new but disparaged the old. Even when over a thousand years later Luther split the Catholic Church and the Protestant movement arose, most of the attitudes and core beliefs of Catholic, of, uh, uh, the Catholic Christianity just followed right on into Protestantism. But those beliefs as regards the relevance of the two testaments for Christians in reality takes matters a step further because it brings us into the realm of the very nature of God. As David Stern in his concise commentary on the New Testament puts it, one sometimes hears presented as Christian doctrine, the second century heresy of Marcion, that the New Testament preaches a superior God of love, while the Old Testament God is an inferior deity concerned with judgment, wrath, justice, and the carrying out of the details of the law. In the present incident of Ananias and Shafra, and at verses 10 and 11, we see that the New Testament is, so far as justice and judgment are concerned, the same as the Tanakh, the Old Testament. God is one. He cannot abide sin. Fraud is sin. So, it's punished. In other words, in the supposed new religion, of Gentiles called Christianity, whose God is Jesus, believers will always be forgiven our trespasses and never suffer the consequences of punishment at the hand of God. And this is because our new God is a God of love and not wrath. And yet in the earliest setting of what is described as the first believing community of Jews in Jerusalem, that's what we're reading about in Acts, that was governed by the first apostles when Ananias and Shafira decided to give to the disciples only some and hold back the remainder of the proceeds from the sale of their personal property, what happened? God instantly snuffed out their lives for their offense. Thus we have a real conundrum before us about whether God's nature has actually changed 
from judgment to love, which is what is typically professed in the church. This story in Acts chapter 5, however, directly refutes the Christian doctrine that says the God of wrath was replaced by His Son, the God of love. Because if that's truly the case, then how can we square that the new God of love would callously kill a husband and a wife for merely not giving a large enough portion of their wealth to the church? What happened to all the unlimited forgiveness and mercy? Therefore, many Christian commentators have attempted to deal with this embarrassment by suggesting that this story is contrived or that it was added later or it is simply a fairy tale. Why? Because its outcome is impossible for them to accept. Now, I explained last week that indeed it is impossible to understand this story if we don't first know the Old Testament and the resultant principles that are at play here in the New Testament. And there are two principles that are front and center. The principles of the law of harem, the law of the ban, and also the law of vow offerings. We discussed this in depth last week, so I won't go over it again. Except to say that they both involve different circumstances under which a human determines to misappropriate property that belongs exclusively to God. Property that belongs to God is by definition holy property. And thus it cannot be kept, used, or consumed by man. The prescribed consequence for these sins is usually death. So before we explore more of Acts chapter 5, beyond the story of the deaths of the husband and wife who tried to defraud God, I think it's vital to discuss two simple but foundational concepts of Judeo-Christianity, which if not understood correctly, lead to many, many erroneous doctrines and beliefs. And those two concepts are love and sin. Love and sin. I can't begin to tell you some of the interesting answers I get when I ask Christians what sin is. But defining love comes in a close second for the many variations I also hear. So I want you to just take a few seconds to ask yourself silently what you personally believe sin is. What is sin to you? Now, what is love? What is love? Think about that for a moment. And while you're getting there to a conclusion, Please open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it is on page 1526. 1526. But I seriously want you to contemplate that question for a minute. I'm not going to have you compare with each other because you might shock one another what answers you would come up with. Okay, you're there. You've thought about it. Let's see what the Lord says about it in 1 John chapter 3. Follow along with me. See what love the Father has lavished on us in letting us be called God's children, for that is what we are. The reason the world that does not know us is that it has not known Him. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and it has not yet been made clear what we will become. We do know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him as He really is. And everyone who has this hope in Him continues purifying himself since God is pure. 
Everyone who keeps sinning is violating Torah. Indeed, sin is violation of Torah. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins and that there is no sin in Him. So no one who remains united with Him continues sinning. Everyone who does continue sinning has neither seen Him nor known Him. Children, don't let anyone deceive you. It is the person that keeps on doing what is right who is righteous, just as God is righteous. The person who keeps on sinning is from the adversary because from the very beginning the adversary has kept on sinning. It is for this very reason that the Son of God appeared to destroy these doings of the adversary. No one who has God as his Father keeps on sinning because the seed planted by God remains in him. That is, he cannot continue sinning because he has God as Father. Here is how one can distinguish clearly between God's children and those of the adversary. Everyone who does not continue doing what is right is not from God. Likewise, anyone who fails to keep loving his brother is not from God. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love each other, not be like Cain, Cain, who was from the evil one and murdered his own brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Don't be amazed, brothers, if the world hates you. We, for our part, know that we have passed from death to life because we keep loving the brothers. The person who fails to keep on loving is still under the power of death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. You know that no murderer has eternal life in him. The way that we have come to know love is through his having laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If someone has worldly possessions and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how can he be loving God? Children, let us love not with words and talk, but with actions and in reality. Here is how we will know that we are from the truth and will set our hearts at rest in His presence. If our hearts know something against us, God is greater than our hearts. He knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts know nothing against us, we have confidence in approaching God. Then whatever we ask for, we receive from Him because we are obeying His commands, doing the things that please Him. This is His command, that we are to trust in the person and the power of His Son, Yeshua the Messiah and to keep on loving one another, just as He commanded us. Those who obey His commands remain united with Him and He with them. Here is how we know that He remains united with us, by the Spirit whom He gave us. That's a mouthful, isn't it? To the shock and dismay of many, The Holy Scriptures tell us that love is not about feelings and talk. Love is an action. Love is reflected by what we do. Feeling love is not biblical love. Doing love is biblical love. That's not to say that love doesn't elicit emotions. Of course it does. But too often for Christians, emotions are not only the dominant element of love, emotions are the only element of love. And the emotion of love then overrides everything else. Here in 1 John, we just read this particular passage about God's view of love. This was from what we just read, 1 John 3, in verses 15 through 18. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. The way that we have come to know love is through his, meaning Yeshua's, having laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If someone has worldly possessions and he sees his brother in need, yet he closes his heart against him, how can he be loving God? 
children, let us love, not with words and talk, but with actions and in reality. See, biblically speaking, love is to accept and hate is to reject. These are definitive actions. John gives us an example of love as an action by our Savior laying down His life for us. See, Yeshua gave up His life not in theory. He didn't do it in sentiment or intentions. Not in mere promises, but actually. And I remind you, we are reading in the New Testament and that God demands that our love is expressed in terms of action. Not words and talk, certainly not mere emotions and warm feelings. Action, says John, is love in reality. All else is not. Now notice in verse 17 how John's words tie so closely to the crime of Ananias and Shafra. Could John be remembering this startling event that we are told brought great fear to the entire believing community? Because in verse 17 he says, if someone has worldly possessions and he sees his brother in need, yet he closes his heart against him, how can he be loving God? Is that not essentially the story and the circumstance of Ananias and Shafra? Okay, but how about sin? What is sin? It is more often than not that Christian brothers and sisters tell me that in their view, sin is whatever the Holy Spirit tells them sin is. This belief is prevalent enough that I have given it a label. The doctrine of situational sin. That is, what sin is for you is not necessarily what sin is for me, and vice versa. Since Christ, sin's now fully customized, and it's entirely circumstantial. There's no standard. A sin can be a sin today, but it wasn't sin yesterday. Maybe it won't be sin tomorrow. So there's no longer a firm, noble set of rules regarding sin. It varies by person by person and situation to situation. Therefore, we can't possibly judge one another. We don't dare look at something a believer is doing and say to ourselves, man, that's sin. And that's because this doctrine of situational sin tells us that since we have no way of what the Holy Spirit told that person, then we, then there's no way of discerning whether they're sinning or not. Lord forbid we'd ever tell an offending believer they were sinning because maybe the Holy Spirit told them that at that moment that wasn't sin for them. That's the doctrine of situational sin. Well, let's see what the Apostle John has to say about sin and what sin is. In 1 John 3, 3-7, we just read, starting at verse 3, it says, And everyone who has this hope in him continues purifying himself since God is pure. Everyone who keeps sinning is violating Torah because indeed sin is violation of Torah. Uh-oh. You know that he, Christ appeared in order to take away sins and that there is no sin in Him. So no one who remains united with Him continues sinning. Everyone who does continue sinning has neither seen Him nor known Him. Children, don't let anyone deceive you. If it is the person that keeps on doing what is right, who is righteous, just as God is righteous. Now, what did John just say sin is? Violating Torah. Anybody hear any equivocation here? 
Any room for kind of adjusting sin to the situation? To the individual? Thus making sin at times not sin? Any thought expressed here that the Holy Spirit can override the written Word of God at any time and then turn sin into righteous behavior? You hear that? I don't. And since I just read this from the complete Jewish Bible, let's see what the most popular Bible version ever made does with this same verse. In the King James Version, it says this in 1 John 3.4, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for for sin is transgression of the law. Pretty straightforward. As much as some believers might like to think that the law of Moses has no further bearing on our lives, or as much as it might be comforting to feel that God has dissolved all standards of sin and has instead now customized sin for each of us. And only that which you perceive in your heart that the Holy Spirit is telling you is sin, is actually sin, and all else isn't, simply defies the biblical definition of sin, including the New Testament definition of sin that we just read. Sin is biblically defined as breaking God's law. And there's only ever been one biblical law. The Torah law, the law of Moses. If you truly believe If you truly believe that the Holy Spirit would tell you something different than what God the Father told you in His written Word, then you cannot possibly believe that God is one. You can't have it both ways. This also means that the Holy Spirit must be telling you something different than what Christ said about sin. Because in the Sermon on the Mount... We read this passage that's oh so familiar to Seed of Abraham and Torah class in Matthew 5, 17 through 19. Don't think that I've come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I've not come to abolish but to complete. Yes, indeed, I tell you, until heaven and earth passes away, not so much as a uter or a stroke is going to pass from the Torah. Not until everything that must happen has happened. So whoever disobeys the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys them and so teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Christ said the law is not abolished. And he said we are to obey the Torah laws and teach the Torah laws so we can be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Who wants to be called the least? But now let me connect something else for you between this quote of Yeshua that we just read in Matthew chapter 5 and what Peter said in the book of Acts. Going back now to Acts chapter 5, I want you to look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. Acts chapter 5 verse 3. Because there it says, Then Kepha, Peter, said, why has the adversary so filled your heart that you lie to the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, and keep back some of the money you received for the land? See, the word that I want us to look at is the word filled. Why has the adversary so filled your heart? Peter asked this question rhetorically. And the Greek word that is being translated into English is pleru. Pleru. And indeed, pleru means to fill or to fill up. I, I could rightfully say to a gas station attendant, there was such a thing anymore, please pleru my gas tank. Please fill it up. Please fill it we find that same Greek word, pleru, in Matthew 5, verse 17. And I bring this up because I regularly hear 
that when Christ says that he's not abolished the Torah, but that he has completed it, it, it means that complete means to finish it. And finish means to bring it to an end. So the Torah may not be abolished, but it's ended. That's an oxymoron if I ever heard one. However, when we reverse engineer that verse, we add the original Greek back into it, we get, don't think I've come to abolish the Torah, I have come to pleru it. Messiah says he's coming to fill the law. Fill it up. Pleru in no way ever means to finish or to end something. It's never used that way in the Bible. Nor is it ever translated that way in the Bible. If pleru did mean to finish or end, then we would have to translate Acts uh, 5, 3 like this. Then Kepha said, Why has the adversary so brought your heart to an end? Doesn't make any sense, does it? The law was alive and well for Ananias and Shafira and all the believers Peter was, lead, was leading. Peter's master Yeshua told him so. And John confirms that sin is breaking the law. What sin was before Christ remains that way after Christ. And what law did these New Testament believers, Ananias and uh, uh, Shaphra, break? At least two. The law of Harem and the law of vow offerings. The price of their sin was instantaneous physical death at the hand of God when their fraud was discovered. And there's no indication or implication that they were anything other than believers in Christ in good standing. But they sinned. The first group of believers in Jerusalem, well, they were of course saved. But they weren't perfect. And the Lord intended on protecting the integrity of this new movement of Yeshua followers at whatever cost. Well, let's reread now part of Acts chapter 5. Back to page 1366 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. We're going to start at verse 12. Read through the end. Meanwhile, through the emissaries, many signs and miracles continued to be done among the people. United in mind and purpose, the believers met in Shlomo's colonnade, Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared to join them. Nevertheless, the people continued to regard them highly, and throngs of believers were added to the Lord, both men and women. They went so far as to bring the sick into the streets, lay them on mattresses and stretchers, so that at least Kepha's shadow might fall on them as he passed by. Crowds also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits. Every one of them was healed. But the Kohen Hagadol, the high priest, and his associates, who were members of the party of the Tzudukim, the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the emissaries, put them in public jail. But during the night, an angel of Adonai opened the doors of the prison, led them out, and said, Go, stand in the temple court and keep telling the people all about this new life. After hearing that, they entered the temple area about dawn and began to teach. Now the Kohen Hagadol and his associates came and called a meeting of the Sanhedrin, that is, of Israel's whole assembly of elders, and sent to the jail to have them brought. But the officers who went did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, Well, we found the jail securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened it, nobody was inside. And when the captain of the temple police and the head Kohanim heard these things, they were puzzled. They wondered what would happen next. Then someone came and reported to them, Listen, the men you ordered put in prison, they're standing in the temple court teaching the people. The captain and his officers went and brought them, but not with force, because they were afraid of being stoned by the people. They conducted them to the Sanhedrin, where the high priest demanded of them, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Look here, you filled Yerushalayim with your teaching. Moreover, you are determined to make us responsible for this man's death. 
Kepha and the other emissaries answered, Well, we must obey God, not men. The God of our fathers raised up Yeshua, whereas you men killed him by having him hanged on a stake. God has exalted this man at his right hand as ruler, as savior, in order to enable Israel to do teshuva, repent, and have her sins forgiven. We are witness to these things. So is the Ruach HaKodesh whom God has given to those who obey Him. And on hearing this, the members of the Sanhedrin were infuriated. They wanted to put the emissaries to death. But one of the members of the Sanhedrin rose to his feet, a porush, a Pharisee, named Gamliel, a teacher of the Torah, highly respected by all the people. And he ordered the men put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the court. Men of Israel... Take care what you do to these people. Some time ago, there was a rebellion under Todah, who claimed to be somebody special. A number of his men, maybe 400, rallied behind him, but upon his being put to death, his whole following was broken up and it came to nothing. Then after this, Yehuda HaGalili, Judah the Galilee, led another uprising. But at the time of the enrollment, as he, back at the time of the enrollment for the Roman tax, and he got some people to defect to him, but he was killed. All his followers were scattered. So, in the present case, my advice to you is not to interfere with these people. Leave them alone. For if this idea or this movement has a human origin, it'll collapse. But if it's from God, you'll not be able to stop them. You might even find yourself fighting God. They heeded his advice. After summoning the emissaries, flogging them, they commanded them not to speak in the name of Yeshua and let him go. The emissaries left the Sanhedrin overjoyed at having been considered worthy of suffering disgrace on account of him. And not for a single day, either in the temple court or in private homes, did they stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Yeshua is the Messiah. Well, after the incident with the deceiving spirit of Ananias and Shafra, we find the disciples meeting at the Temple Mount, specifically at Solomon's Portico, which is a very popular public meeting place. And what were they there to do? They were... To perform, they went there to perform many more signs and miracles. The very thing that the Sanhedrin told them they must not do. That part's pretty straightforward. But what does it mean in verse 13 that no one else dared to join them? Who's the no one else? Well, this is especially complicated because the next words say throngs of believers were added to the Lord. See, what's clear is that those who dared not join them at Solomon's portico were reacting to what had just happened to Ananias and Shafra because verse 11 says, as a result of this great fear came over the whole Messianic community. So while I can't prove it, it seems to me that those who didn't dare to join some of the apostles at Solomon's portico to continue public healings and miracles in the name of Yeshua were frightened believers. And even so, the result of the miracles and the healings done publicly at the Temple Mount was that throngs more came to believe. I think I can put this in modern application that's a little easier to see. One of the main reasons that Christians will tell you, they've told me, that they won't make a pilgrimage to Israel is fear. Fear. That fear does not make them any less Christian than those who don't have that fear. Or they overcame that fear and they went anyway. On the other hand, those Jerusalem believers who were too frightened to want to be part of the healings and the miracles that were being done and perhaps the most visible place in all of the Holy Lands missed out on a huge blessing. They didn't get to witness, let alone to participate in these awesome works of God that changed the lives of scores of hundreds, maybe, of people. And be aware, much like the coming of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost caused an ability for all the disciples that were present to speak in tongues, but only marginally so thereafter. 
these miracles of healing on a massive scale like we're seeing here only lasted a short time. Soon, although we still might hear of occasional healings in the New Testament, they would become few and far between. Because Jews were not sold on the idea of medicine and physicians, and instead they placed their hope in the healing of their bodies in the Lord, that it's not surprising that the word spread like wildfire, that many people were being healed by Peter and the disciples. So verse 16 says that the sick and those who were afflicted with unclean spirits poured into the temple mount and were brought before the disciples to be healed. And please note, we're told, every one of them was healed. No exceptions. I mean, pity those fearful believers who were just too scared to be part of this unprecedented outpouring of God's healing power. Who knows how many of them had afflictions that would have been healed. We are told that the Jews were so anxious to partake of this healing power that the disciples seemed to wield that they were happy just to have Peter's shadow pass over them. We need to understand though that a person's shadow was considered to be part of the person. And no doubt some amount of local superstition was also at play among those who brought the sick and those with unclean spirits, meaning they were demon-possessed. However, even the small amount of their faith and what they saw happening with their own eyes was such that they sought it for themselves. And this was sufficient in God's eyes to heal them. The religious officials of Jerusalem they didn't have this simple faith. Instead, they reacted how? Jealousy, anger. They saw this as an assault on their personal power and authority. See, verse 17 explains that the high priest and his associates were Sadducees, meaning other members of the Sanhedrin who met mostly on the Temple Mount, and they came running to stop what had they had previously ordered wasn't to happen anymore. So Peter is again arrested. Only this time, along with other disciples, and they're all put into jail. However, once again, God overturns. But sinful man is ordained. An angel opens the jail, releases the disciples to go right back to where they were and starts preaching and healing again. There are a couple of things about this incident I'd like to address. The first is the identity of the angel. Now the words used in English are an angel of the Lord, or in Greek, angelos kurios. Angelos kurios. Angel of the Lord is a good and accurate translation of that Greek. Some commentators therefore make this to be that special angel that we hear of a few times in the Old Testament, like with Hagar out in the desert near death. And there it's called the angel of the Lord. However, that's not what we have here. You see, in Hebrew, the word for angel is malach. Malach. Yet malach is really just a generic word that means messenger. And most of the time it's a human messenger, just like we think of a messenger. However, sometimes it's an angel. But how do we tell the difference? First is context. But second is that most of the time a heavenly angel is called a Malach Elohim. Malach Elohim. That is a messenger from God. A few times a heavenly angel is called a Malach Adonai. That is a messenger from the Lord. In other words, the word malach has to be modified by adding another word to it in order for us to be informed that the messenger is a heavenly one. It's an angel. can't stand alone. That is what's happening here in Acts 5.19. The term an angel of the Lord is translating the Hebrew thought of malach Adonai. 
Alternatively, when we are speaking of, an, uh, of that special angel, the angel of the Lord, in Hebrew it is written, Malach Yudhevavhe, Malach Yehoveh. That is, God's formal names attached to the word. And I believe that this special angel is no angel at all, but rather it is yet another manifestation of God himself. Because any time in the Bible that the Malach Yehovah speaks, he speaks upon his own authority. He uses the first person, I, me. A regular angel makes it clear he comes in God's authority, bringing God's message, not his own. Now the second issue I want to discuss is something we we discussed actually a few years ago. Time to bring it up again. And that's because I fear that the need is upon us. That issue is civil disobedience. Or more to the point, should a believer ever engage in civil disobedience against our governing authorities? That's a tough question. Of course there's mixed opinion on this, often stemming from Paul's famous commandment to obey our human government. You find that in Romans 13. 1 through 6, he says this, Everyone is to obey the governing authorities. For there is no authority that's not from God, and the existing authorities have been placed where they are by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities is resisting what God has instituted, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are no terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you like to be unafraid of the person in authority? Then do what is good, and you will win his approval. For he is God's servant, there for your benefit. But if you do what's wrong, be afraid. Because he is not because it is not for nothing that he holds the power of the sword. For he is God's servant, there as an avenger to punish wrongdoers. Another reason to obey, besides fear of punishment, is for the sake of conscience. This is why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's public officials constantly attending to these duties. Yet, here in Acts, we see Peter and the disciples doing what? Defiantly refusing to obey their local government. Because, in their view, they should obey God and not man. He says that straight out. We should obey God and not man when the two are in conflict. Acts 4.19 Now I'm not going to try to summarize, rather I am going to try to summarize my opinion on how I think believers ought to approach this very real issue recognizing that by no means is mine the final word. First, we need to understand the difference between preferences and morals. For instance, I prefer one brand of cereal over another. Or I prefer chocolate ice cream to strawberry ice cream. Pardon to you strawberryites out there. Neither of these choices involves morals. Instead, these are decisions our intellects, uh, of our intellects that God allows us to make with no heavenly consequences for our choices. However, moral choices are quite different. Believers are to get our moral standards only from God. Example, I choose to insist that prayer and the Ten Commandments must be removed from our schools for the sake of even-handedness, societal fairness. Or, I choose to tell the truth rather than to lying to a business associate. These, both of these, are choices of my will. And the human will was given to mankind by the Lord as the means by which we make moral choices. Next, we have to understand that most of what goes on between citizens and their governments involves preferences. Paul brings up the issue of taxes 
for instance. How much tax and what form we pay it, that's a choice our government makes. And it is a preference as opposed to an issue of morality. That I don't like it, or that it can be burdensome or maybe even unfair in my view, that does not make it a moral issue. Healthcare is another example of preference. You can like or dislike Medicare or Obamacare or the proposed nationalized healthcare system modeled after Canada's and Europe's. But this too is a matter of preference, not morality. Speed limits, food safety laws, zoning ordinances, even those troublesome EPA laws. These are all preferences, and they don't usually involve morality, but they can anger us and can impinge on our personal freedoms as we see them. That some politicians or voters try to frame these matters as moral issues, that doesn't make it so. They just use moral to evoke greater passion for their position or as a means even of of, uh, manipulation. On the other hand, what could be greater examples of moral issues legislated by the government than abortion, homosexuality, and gay marriage? God is clear about the value of every life and even clearer that marriage is in his province alone and it is a bond between a male and a female. We are told in numerous passages, Old and New Testaments, that homosexuality is an abomination in God's sight. So for our government to glorify these things and force it upon our society, well, that's a moral outrage. I am persuaded that in Romans 13, Paul is insisting that we obey our governments over matters that do not involve morality. And I'm equally convinced that Peter believes he has no choice but to speak God's word and to spread the gospel and to heal in the name of Yeshua as a fundamental moral issue. Therefore, I believe that this is how we, as Messianics and Christians, Jews and Gentiles, this is how we need to approach the matter. Civil disobedience in the instance of matters of preference is not called for. And in fact, the Bible discourages from it, uh, discourages us from it. I can't say that there aren't cases where dis- civil disobedience is called for in the matters of preference if they're to the extreme. You know, like a 90 or 100% tax on all of our income, for instance. It basically just renders us as slaves. But barring something that extreme... We should not refuse to pay our taxes because we don't like the system. Or we think it doesn't meet our standard of fairness. However, I firmly believe that civil disobedience is warranted and necessary, if not our duty, when it comes to obeying God over obeying our government who has made immoral laws and is trying to force us to follow them. Peter and the disciples breaking out of prison with the Lord's help. (laughs) Then going back to healing and preaching, that's our example. And I'm going to close with this possibility that could easily become real very soon in America. In Canada, it is illegal to speak against homosexuality from the pulpit. It is considered hate speech and there is no sanctuary from it anywhere, not even in the privacy of your home. An infamous case in the province of New Brunswick occurred just a few years ago. A pastor was arrested for teaching on God's commandments involving sexual immorality and of course homosexuality was part of it he was arrested he was brought before a judge who jailed him for three months until he finally agreed to undergo government sensitivity training 
And he signed a document saying he would never again speak against homosexuality in his church. Were there demonstrations of believers against this? No. Did believers try to bust him out of jail? No. Did other pastors intentionally speak out against homosexuality from the pulpit in support and just dare the government to arrest them all? No. Did believers go on strike or block intersections or hand out leaflets, besiege the government in protest? No. There was no civil disobedience and so it was kind of a back page story in the Canadian newspapers. And I say to you unequivocally, there should have been civil disobedience. If Peter had been there, I assure you there would have been civil disobedience. Fellow believers, civil disobedience is absolutely called for when we are being forced to commit immoral acts or to condone government-sanctioned immorality. Should we seek confrontation? No. Should we do everything as peaceably and non-violently as possible? Yes. But make no mistake, there will be a cost. There is no shame in going to jail or paying a fine over refusing to be obedient to human civil government, but obedient to the Lord. There's no shame in that. You may even have a business taken away from you for refusing to do the immoral. But if that's the case, then that's what should happen. Whatever happens, we should all count it as joy that the Lord has allowed us to suffer for His sake. As we read in the same chapter of Acts, Acts 5 that we're studying in verses 40 to 42, after summoning the emissaries and flogging them, they commanded them not to speak in the name of Yeshua and then let them go. The emissaries left the Sanhedrin overjoyed they having been considered worthy of suffering disgrace on account of him. And not for a single day, either in the temple court or in private homes, did they stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Yeshua is the Messiah. So the issue is not whether believers can or should act in civil disobedience if that time should come. The issue is to have the courage to act and then to accept the likely consequences that will be handed down by our human governmental authorities. We'll finish up Acts chapter 5 next week.